If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We've been making our way through the book. Hopefully you don't feel like it's taking too long. Uh, It's one of the uh, privileges, or I guess one of the benefits of speaking in both the Sunday morning and the Sunday evening service is we can go a little bit faster through the books, and you might think it's going slow, but uh, it's it's still going a little bit faster than it would if all we did was uh, Sunday mornings. But uh, it's hard for me to believe that we're nearing the end of chapter 4 of 16 uh, chapters in the epistle. Now, the last several weeks, we've been looking at the first problem that Paul identified in the church of Corinth. Remember, um, they had written a letter to him that perhaps uh, had a bunch of questions in it, and he responds to those questions throughout the book. But he had also heard from uh, those who are of the household of Chloe, or Chloe's people, that there were divisions in the church at Corinth. Chapter 1, verse, verses 10 and 11, he comes right out and tells them that he's heard that they are divided and that they are quarreling. Um, but then we learned in the last several weeks that the problem actually goes deeper than surface divisions following after different apostles, but it, it betrays the fact that some in the Corinthian church were uh, mesmerized with human wisdom and exalting human personalities or leaders in the church instead of embracing God's wisdom found in the cross of Jesus Christ. So at the end of chapter 3, Paul starts issuing these final demands or commands to them. He says, first, do not deceive yourselves about the, the value of the world's wisdom. And he quotes from Job, and he quotes from the Psalms that says, you want know God sees right through those who use human wisdom, and God will catch the wise in their own craftiness. And the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are completely empty or futile. So don't use worldly wisdom in the church. God will make you aware. Then he says, uh, do not boast in men. You look at 1 Corinthians three twenty-one. there. Do not boast in men. You're exalting different leaders. You need to understand all these leaders uh, are your possession as a church. They're under you. Don't boast in men. Boast in Christ instead. Then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, he says, uh, also do not pronounce premature judgments. You see the command right in 4 in verse 5. Therefore, he says in, in 4 or 5, do not pronounce judgment. That's his third demand or command of them. Don't pretend like you are the ultimate judge of the world and hold Apollos or Paul or Cephas accountable to your own judgment. Don't pronounce premature evaluations. And then finally, uh, you must remember the true source of all giftedness. Remember, it's not human beings that produce fruit anyway. God is the one. And don't boast in your own gifts as if you're the original source of them. But recognize that it's God who has given you these good things. As we come to verses 8 through 13 this morning, Paul gives another characteristic of those who embrace human wisdom. This characteristic is an unwillingness to endure much affliction for the sake of Christ. In other words, worldly wisdom 
promotes self-preservation and promotion, not sacrifice for the sake of Christ. And so what Paul does in verses 8 through 13 is he speaks very frankly about the nature of his own ministry and the ministry of the apostles. Then he speaks very clearly about the true condition of the Corinthian assembly so that the Corinthians might learn that they need to be a public picture of Jesus Christ. Now, there is a poem that I learned several years ago, actually in junior high, that I think helps us kind of reckon with this text a bit. Uh, Now, in full transparency this morning, I'm not really a poem sort of guy. I think I've learned two poems. I've memorized two poems in my life, and both were forced upon me by a a high school teacher. Um, But this one has stuck with me over the years. It's called Hast Thou No Scar, and it was written by Amy Carmichael. And so I want to reflect upon this a bit because I think these are the sort of questions that Paul would have the Corinthians consider. The poem goes this way. It says, Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent. Pause for a second. Now she's going to reflect upon what Christ went through. Yet I was wounded by the archers spent. Leaned me against a tree to die and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me. I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar. Yes, as the master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound, no scar? This poem, Amy Carmichael, tries to picture Christ asking us those sort of questions. Can you say that you've traveled Christ far if you have no wounds and no scars? Our text this morning speaks of the believer's need to become a picture of Christ to the world around them. And Paul explains here that the Corinthians, uh, to the Corinthians, that they must become a public picture of Jesus Christ. But this congregation is not quick to pay the price, the high price of looking like Christ in this world. Uh, The outline I have for you this morning is really a simple outline to follow through verses 8 through 10. In verses 8 through 10, I see a striking contrast between two people or groups of people. A striking contrast. It's, It's like a case study of two very different Christians. And so in verses 8 through 10, uh, we'll read the text. We'll see a striking contrast between Paul the Apostle and the church at Corinth. Look with me at verse 8. Paul says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us, apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we become a spectacle unto the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. 
We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. The first three verses here, verses 8 through 10, give us a striking contrast between Paul and the church at Corinth. As we study these two different models, the question I want you to consider all morning, okay, all morning long as we go through this is, uh, is my life better reflected or closer to what Paul says about himself and the apostles, or do I look more like the Corinthian assembly? So which one of these two is a better picture of your life as you approach Jesus Christ? I want to start, first of all, by looking at what this text says about Paul and the apostles, and I'll summarize it this way. Paul was not glamorous. It was not glamorous. For a moment, we'll skip over verse 8, and we go down into verse 9, and we see that Paul describes himself and the other apostles in certain ways. He first says that they were a public spectacle. A public spectacle. Look at verse 9. It says, Uh, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Here, Paul's life is not glamorous. It's actually, to be a spectacle would be repulsive or lowly or embarrassing. Now, with some of these descriptions in verse 9, I think that Paul has a very vivid picture in his mind. When he says things like, like men brought out last. You see that in verse 9? We are like the men brought out last. And we are like those who are sentenced to death. In verse 9, most uh, Bible students and teachers suggest that Paul has one of two pictures in mind. Some people think that when Paul says we're like men brought out last, that he's got a picture of the Roman gladiatorial games in his mind. Okay, And so the guys brought out last would be the guys who would fight to death or the men who would either fight another gladiator or fight you know, the lions or something. And everyone knows that the guys at the end of the games are certain to die. Paul says, we, the apostles, are like the men at the end of the games that everyone knows is going to die. So a lot of commentators will suggest that he's got that picture in mind. Uh, The other picture, though, is uh, Paul might be thinking instead, and this is the one I prefer, of a Roman triumphal procession here in this text. I think the language here is of a triumphal procession. Now keep your finger here and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 for a moment. I want to show you that I think that the Corinthians would be familiar with a Roman triumphal procession or some sort of victory parade that they would have at the end of successful battles. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and you, you look with me at verse 14, Paul says, and I'm reading from the ESV, and actually I really like the translation in this text, He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved 
and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? I think Paul is using triumphal procession language in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 as well. Now, a Roman triumphal procession uh, was held when Rome was successful in a single battle to kill more than 500 people of an opposing force. See, how frequent were these triumphal processions in the first century? One scholar says that there's evidence for over 300 of these being performed in the first century. These parades, these victory parades, would take place either in the city of Rome or the city that was captured by Rome. And you can actually Google this this week. You could Google Roman triumphal procession. Don't do it now during church, of course. But yeah, I mean, you could do this this week and you could see some pictures because there have been large prints found of these triumphal processions. And if you look at those prints, you'll see that in this victory parade, as the procession would go, that in the middle was the victorious general, the Roman general or conqueror. And he would be held up in the air and people would be celebrating his power and significance. This, the, the emperor or the, uh, the general would be surrounded by soldiers who would be shouting low triumph and celebration to this conqueror. He would also be surrounded by trumpeters and spoils from the victory. And at the very end of the parade, there would be some infamous captives who would be chained and drugged through the streets. And you see, everyone knew that the people at the end of the parade were sure to be executed. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Now to better understand what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians 2, the question is, does Paul see himself and the other apostles as soldiers who are always triumphing because they've got the general Christ on their side, which a lot of People believe, and some translations have taken it that way. Or does Paul see himself like one of the slaves at the back of the line who's been triumphed over by Jesus Christ? And I think that's a better view of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And so Paul's attitude is, although I'm like the guy at the back of the line, I'm grateful or thankful that I've been triumphed over by Jesus Christ. You see, Paul was the great persecutor of the church. He was the enemy of Christ, but God triumphed over him through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 for a moment. With that picture in mind, I think that that is what, how Paul is describing himself and some of the other apostles. He says, when I would describe myself and people like Apollos and Cephas, we're like the men brought out last. The men who are sure to die because we are a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. You see this in your Bible, verse 9? Spectacle to world, to angels, and to men. The word spectacle comes from the Greek word theatron, okay? Uh, From which, and some people would even translate it 
things seen in a theater. Okay, we're like the things viewed in a theater. They were sure to die. And this is how the world views Paul and the apostles. It'd be all of creation as they observe them. They're seeing this spectacle, this public picture of the suffering of Christ. This is how angels would see them. This is how mankind noticed or saw them as well. And so Paul pictures himself and the other apostles as a public spectacle in the eyes of the world. I think if many of us even were able to observe Paul's great suffering and imprisonments and beatings for the cause of Christ, that we too would be uncomfortable with it. But Paul embraced this sort of suffering ministry for the cause of Christ. I think for Paul, it was nothing more than Philippians 3.10. You know Philippians 3.10? Paul there in that book says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. I mean, where did Paul get the idea that Christ-like believers would be called upon to endure suffering or ridicule? I think one of the places he got it was from Christ himself. Just observing and looking at the ministry of Christ himself, I mean, Christ was not glamorous. He endured much suffering and ridicule. I mean, we read Isaiah 53 this morning that prophesied about Christ that he would be afflicted and beaten. He'd be wounded for our transgressions. He'd be crushed for our iniquities. And it would be only through the stripes of Jesus that we would be healed. I mean, surely Christ knew what it meant to suffer and to be viewed as a spectacle. So Paul, as a Christ-like follower, just says, you know, this is how people would see us and the apostles as well. May I stop here for a moment before I continue to describe Paul and the apostle and ask you, what's your approach to the world? What's your approach to the world? I mean, some of us won't even share one word with another person about Jesus Christ. Remember where I started this, this whole challenge off with, or do we look more like Paul or the Corinthian assembly. Right now we're looking at Paul, and I'm asking you, do you look like Paul and his willingness to endure suffering and affliction if you are unwilling to share one word of testimony for Jesus Christ? One of us, or I guess some of us, won't even pass out one tract for the Lord. We won't walk to one of our neighbors and tell them about Jesus Christ Instead of being a public spectacle, perhaps many of us are a little bit more like a powerless mute for Jesus Christ. Unwilling to tell anyone. Afraid. Embarrassed. We must be a public picture of Christ to the world around us, even if it means suffering and ridicule for the sake of the name of Christ. So Paul's a public spectacle, but then go... Back to 1 Corinthians 4, and look with me at verse 10. He gives some of these final descriptions in verse 10. We are also fools for Christ. This comes from the Greek word moroi. Moroi, which uh, could be translated, we are considered to be morons. 
for the sake of Christ. Paul's life and testimony, when perceived by the world, would, would look uh, like a waste, but he looks an awfully, awful lot here like Christ. We're fools for Christ's sake. A little bit later on in verse 10, looking back there again, he says, we are considered to be weak. I mean, Paul was not a good speaker. He was not a tower of a man. He was not a picture of stately strength, but he was weak from the perception of the world. And I make this point, I think, yet in Paul's weakness, God used him perhaps to see more people converted than the entire church of Corinth. But regardless, this is how the world would see Paul and the apostles. They are fools. They're weak. And then the last description, verse 10, and uh, then they are also despised. Or as the text says, we are held in disrepute. Some people look down their noses at the apostle Paul and the other apostles. This is perhaps true concerning the lost world around them. It's, It's probably also true the way some in the church at Corinth would have looked at Paul. They did not appreciate him. Perhaps they were not of his group. You know, Paul's group may have been fairly small in Corinth. And so in a moment of transparency here, as we're making this contrast, Paul describes himself in this way. He says, we are public spectacles. We are fools for Christ. We are weak and we are held in disrepute by those around us. Okay, that's the first part of the contrast. But then we go back up into verse 8, and we skipped over a section here that describes the church at Corinth. And if I were to describe the church at Corinth in this text, I would use three descriptions of them. I would say, first of all, they they were comfortable materially. Secondly, they're deceived spiritually. And third, they're well-received by the world. Okay, that's how I say it. Let's see if that holds true with what Paul says Look in your Bible at verse 8. They were comfortable materially. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Stop there for a second. I think that Paul is is describing their material comfort with those first two statements in verse 8. When he says, you have all you want, this speaks of an abundance of food. They are full. There are some people that think that uh, the, there was a crisis going on in the city of Corinth when Paul writes this, and that that crisis had to do with a famine. But I don't see that as being true of these people. As he's describing the Corinthian assembly, he says, you have all you want, you are full. And then he says, right after that, and you are rich. This speaks of the abundance of wealth that they had. I mean, they had it made financially compared to the Apostle Paul. Okay, so the first way we've got to describe this church is they are comfortable materially. You get that? Okay, then in verse 8, he gives another description where he says in the very next phrase, and you have reigned as kings without us. Now, what does that mean? Okay, my personal opinion of this phrase is At this point, Paul begins to use a little sarcasm to boldly confront them. Because in the very next statement, he says, and I wish, uh, uh, and I better do it from, not from memory or I'll mess it up. Uh, 
And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. See that at the end of verse 8? And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. I think some of the Corinthian believers felt that they were reigning spiritually. They truthfully thought that they had it made both materially and spiritually. In other words, they were acting as if the kingdom of God had already arrived on planet earth and that it was them. That they were kings reigning and ruling spiritually in the world today. So Paul says that he wishes that were true because if they were kings, it would be, I believe from Paul's perspective, only after Christ returns and then Paul and the other apostles would rule with them. A few verses later, look down in your Bible at verses 19 and 20. He will confront them about their views of the kingdom. He says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Okay, so they're good talkers, but they don't have much spiritual power. But then look at verse 20. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And so few verses later, he'll critique them by saying that if there is any present demonstration of the kingdom in this world, it includes supernatural power, and it's not all about words. It's not about talk. As Paul wanted the Corinthians to realize that they were deceived spiritually. They thought that they were reigning, but that's not the case at all. They're deceived spiritually about their true condition as a church. Okay, now, there's one other description I think Paul gives of them, and that's at the end of verse 10. So they're comfortable materially. They're deceived spiritually. They think they're reigning as kings, but they're not. And then at the end of verse 10, I would describe it this way, and they are dangerously well-received by the world. Paul says there at the end of, uh, look, at, look with me actually at verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake. The we is the apostles. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you, Corinthian church, are wise in Christ. We are weak apostles, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Here, these three descriptions were probably how lost people saw them or perhaps how the Corinthians saw themselves. They were able somehow to maintain worldly wisdom in Christ. Okay, so lost people, they think of us as fools in Christ, but they still see you as being wise in Christ. Um, They weren't weak like Paul. Perhaps that's the way some people would perceive them. The, the, The apostles, they're all like weak, but you still have strength. And the world somehow still holds a high estimate of them because of their strength and their wisdom. They think that we are utter, utter foolishness and nonsense, but you, they hold in honor. They hold you up in honor. So the point I want to make here is that this church is well-received by the first century world around them. I want to stop and make two applications for our church, and in, in full transparency, these applications come right out of a commentary by Gordon Fee. He made Two applications at the end of this section that were just perfect and just really convicted me uh, in the last few weeks. So I want to I 
share the blessing of conviction with you <laughs> uh, for a moment here. First of all, Gordon, C- is, Gordon Fee's first application is this. He said, perhaps we are much more like the Corinthian church than any of us would dare admit. He said, we are rich, we are well-filled, and too often we're blind to our own desperate needs. I read that application, thought, oh man, that is so challenging to the church in America today. And myself. We're rich, we're well-filled, and too often we're blind to our own desperate needs. Sounds like the Corinthians. If the first application didn't get you right between the eyes, the second one is sure to. He said, perhaps also, if we were a little bit more like Paul and our Lord, we too would know what it means to suffer ridicule for the name of Christ. Some of us might be tempted to respond to Paul's harsh description of himself and the other apostles as a description of the Corinthian assembly and say, you know, all this persecution talk and all this suffering stuff, this is for the first century and it shouldn't be true of believers in America today. But I would ask you, what do you do with texts like 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12? You can write down that reference and you can go there this week and think about this verse. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul tells Timothy, near the end of Paul's life, he says, Timothy, he says, yay, or yes, all who are godly in Christ Jesus will suffer what? Persecution. Okay, so what does the church in America today do with that verse? I got it. I know what we'll do. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, draw a, a little black X in the margin, and we'll put words like, this doesn't count, or something like this. This is not applicable for us today, right? That's what we like to do with it, but Paul says, every person who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I think of the very words of Christ himself in John 15, verse 20. He's talking to the apostles and he says, if they have persecuted me, they will persecute who? They'll persecute you as well. So as we look at this striking contrast in verses 8 through 10, we have to ask ourselves, do we look a little bit more like the Corinthian church or the apostle Paul? And if we looked a little bit more like Paul in our world, don't you think we would suffer persecution for the cause of Christ as well? So Paul lays out this contrast for the church as to our edification that he does. Now in verses 11 through 13, he then continues with his startling description of true followers of Christ. And let's just Read these verses, and I'll comment upon them briefly before we close. Paul says, To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. Here in these verses, he gives these final descriptions of himself and the other apostles. He, he shows, first of all, that they were greatly persecuted. 
I mean, in, in verse 11 into verse 12, he gives six descriptions here of the sort of persecution and suffering that he endured as an apostle. He said, there are times where I hungered in apostolic ministry. There were times when Paul did not have sufficient or, uh, sufficient or ample food to sustain him in ministry. The other times when he didn't have sufficient drink, he said, and I thirsted. He said, I was poorly dressed at times as an apostle. There were times when I think, especially near the the end of his life or when he was in prison, when he asked for a coat, perhaps because the conditions in the prison are cold and he doesn't have sufficient clothing. He says, there are times when I've been poorly dressed as an apostle. Now, our poorly dressed in America today is nothing like the poorly dressed of the Apostle Paul in the first century. We think like if someone doesn't have proper fashion, they have the right label, poorly dressed. No, Paul says, forget about labels. I don't even have clothes sometimes in ministry for Jesus Christ. He's poorly dressed. Then the next description says he was buffeted. Be careful not to pronounce this one buffeted. That's the contemporary application for the Baptist churches in America today. You know, something about buffet lines. But buffeted speaks of unprovoked, vulgar, physical mistreatment. To be buffeted meant to be cuffed or beaten to inflict pain. And this word would be used when someone would hit another person with their fist or the palm of their hand. Paul says, I know what it means to be cuffed or beaten, to inflict pain. There were times when he was homeless as a traveler, and then the last one, he labored working with his own hands, which is not the normal word for work, but implies toilsome labor. See, his first six descriptions in verse 11, then into verse 12, describe the fact that Paul was persecuted for the cause of Christ. And tradition will confirm this, because Paul himself will die as a martyr in Rome under Nero several years after this. Paul was greatly afflicted. And then he he was, as a follower of Christ, he was patient amid suffering and affliction. Look at the middle part of verse 12 in your Bible. He says, and, and then from verse 12 into verse 13, there are these groups of two. When reviled, we bless. That's our response. So we're treated with reviling, and we respond with blessing. When persecuted, that's how we're treated, we endure. When slandered, that's how we're treated, we entreat. The word reviled means to be railed at or cursed. When people heaped spoken verbal abuse on the apostle Paul, he blessed them in return. How hard would that be for us today? Someone verbally abusing you because of your commitment to Jesus Christ for you to say, bless you, bless you. I mean, and where do you think Paul got that idea? I mean, I I vaguely recall someone who could have called 12 legions of angels to destroy the world and to set him free, but he didn't. And as Isaiah 53 says, no, Christ endured the cross humbly without lifting or opening his mouth. 
He endures through suffering. That's the second one. Being persecuted, he endured. He bore it patiently. And then, although he was slandered, he entreated. This means he answered kindly in the face of being publicly defamed. See, Paul did not lash out at his attackers to preserve his own credibility as a human being. Instead, he continued on and he suffered patiently for the follower, as a follower of Christ. As you're looking through this text, perhaps to me, the two most significant words that describe Paul's treatment by the world come at the very end of the text. Two powerful word pictures here for us that are not flattering at all. Look at verse 13. When slandered we entreat, we have become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. The word scum could be translated filth. And this word was often used of filth that would be scraped off of the floor of a building or, like in Corinth, off of the streets of the city. It's the, it's the polluted garbage that would collect in the streets of the city of Corinth. Paul says... As people think of us, they think of us like that scum in the gutter. And then, he says, we have become and are still like the refuse of all things. And this is exactly what the ESV translators, how they've translated it. We are like waste, human or animal waste. Many people considered Paul and the other apostles like animal waste or human refuse. And so, men men and women, Paul was not well accepted by the world. Whereas the Corinthian church was dangerously well-liked and accepted. In other words, Paul had scars that showed the genuineness of his partnership to Christ, the one who bore the marks for our sin. How about you today? Do you look more like Paul or the Corinthian assembly? I'm afraid that many churches in our world today have so dumbed down our call to be the salt of the earth that the salt has definitely lost its savor. We have so dimmed our role to be the light of the world like a city set on a hill. Instead, we become a little flicker of light for the world. Instead, we must be a public picture of Jesus Christ to the world at our work, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, And we must be willing to bear the scars and the wounds for Christ. I ask you this morning as we close, will you be willing to renounce your determination to preserve yourself and your own reputation so that Christ is pictured by those around you? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
to give you just a moment to reflect upon this text God has for us here. Perhaps first you could think about whether or not there have been any missed opportunities in your life this week to show the world Christ? Were there any moments where you had an opportunity, you came right to the brink of sharing Christ, and yet you were ashamed of the gospel? Then I would encourage you to confess that lack of zeal to picture Christ to the world. Or perhaps at least you could do this in your moment of quiet reflection. You could strategize about who this week God might call you to reach. And if we suffer in doing this, let it be. But may God give us strength and boldness to look like Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being here this morning. I thank you for this text. Lord, a striking contrast between Paul and the church at Corinth. And it startles us. Lord, if we have to be on a spectrum closer to the Corinthian assembly or closer to Paul, I wonder where we would be. And Lord, ultimately, may we have zeal like an apostle who says that I may know him, including being able to fellowship with him in his sufferings. Lord, may we be a public picture to this world of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.